Discipline for federal judges falls under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. Similarly, say it's not as applied as often as it should be. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Elisa Schatzman, a lawyer who shares that opinion. She's the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. The nonprofit offers support and resources to federal clerks who do not have positive experiences with their employment. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Of course. So you recently wrote a few different articles about D.C. Circuit Judge Pauline Newman. And my understanding is that she is suing other judges and her chief after an investigation uh, was launched on her under this act. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So Judge Polly Newman is a 96-year-old federal circuit judge. She was appointed by Reagan in 1984. She's been on the bench for almost 40 years. I am not a patent expert, but the federal circuit handles patent litigation, and she is known as a very prolific dissenter. She's had a long and storied career. But over the past few years, it's become clear that she is taking longer to issue fewer opinions and to handle fewer cases than her colleagues. Back in March, it became public that the Federal Circuit Judicial Council, led by Chief Judge Kimberly Moore, was investigating Judge Newman for several issues. The slowness with which she was handling cases, as well as the fact that she seemed forgetful and confused There were also some issues with her treatment of law clerks and allegations that she violated the confidentiality provision of the Employee Dispute Resolution or EDR plan. So this controversy is rare for several reasons, one of which judges are rarely disciplined under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act for either having a disability that precludes them from handling their judicial duties or misconduct like mistreating clerks. And it's also rare for investigation to become public. But over the past few months, since the investigation was launched, Judge Newman has refused to meaningfully participate, refused to accept service, refused to submit to a medical evaluation or provide documentation. As you mentioned, she later sued her colleagues in federal court. That was moved to mediation, which was recently determined to be unsuccessful. And the Federal Circuit Judicial Council, a three-judge panel, recently issued a lengthy opinion, more than 100 pages plus 200 pages of exhibits, indicating that Judge Newman would be sanctioned, that she would not be permitted to hear new cases for one year, finding that she had refused to participate meaningfully into the investigation into her alleged disability. Do you think it might be telling that on it, it's so rare for these investigations to come up, and in this situation, it involves a woman in her 90s. You know, how often would a, a man in his 60s and 70s with a whole lot of power, maybe who sits, you know, in criminal court or civil court, you know, I'm wondering if it's, are there thoughts on that? If it's like, why are you going after this judge and not the hordes of others who never get any pushback on their behavior. Oh, so it's a good point. So I tend to believe that judicial discipline should be meted out more routinely to judges who mistreat their clerks, to judges who are concealing a disability that precludes them from handling their judicial duties. 
Look, I am careful to say that it is not about Judge Newman's age, per se. I know that when I write and speak about this topic, I'll occasionally get a little bit of pushback about whether this is, quote, age discrimination. Judge Newman is 96 years old. And I don't know how many people you know who are 96, but my dad recently retired in his late 70s. He was a dean and a college professor. And he's a very healthy person, and he has slowed down a little bit since he was 50 or 60. Um, Wear and tear of aging affects all of us, but not all of us are tasked with interpreting the law, dealing with issues that affect litigants' lives, livelihoods, and liberty every day. This is a rigorous position, and I think... When the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act was first passed in the 1980s, it was kind of believed that if a judge reached a certain age and they could no longer efficiently exercise their judicial duties, family members or colleagues would step in and encourage them to retire, and they would. But that is not an effective way to handle judicial conduct, to handle judicial discipline. And as this case illustrates... We need better mechanisms to address judicial conduct and address judicial disability. Judge Newman is certainly not the only older judge who should probably be strongly encouraged to retire. And I am hoping that drawing attention to this issue will encourage more judges who have reached a certain age to consider retiring. We need young, diverse judges taking the bench fresh blood on the bench, a diversity of opinions. Uh, It's not personal about Judge Newman, but it is certainly concerning to me that she continues to refuse to participate in the investigation into her conduct. Do you think, though, that it is important to remember it's it's not about age so much as the individual? Absolutely. Yes, certainly. If she were not exhibiting the issues that she's exhibiting, this slowness at issuing opinions, handling cases, handling fewer cases, seeming confused and forgetful. Of course, if she were not exhibiting those issues, she should certainly continue to serve. But she is, and she has really not provided any evidence to the contrary by refusing to meaningfully participate, submit to a medical evaluation, submit medical documentation, The Judicial Council and the Federal Circuit, this three-judge panel, has made clear that they can't really make a finding about disability because she's refusing to participate. Judicial discipline is really ineffective in the federal courts, but this is a system we have, and Judge Newman took the bench knowing the JC&D Act applies to her, and it really troubles me that she refuses to participate in the investigation into her conduct. How common is it for these investigations to even get to the point where they're public? This seems extremely rare to me. Good question. It is very uncommon. There are over a thousand complaints filed under the JCND Act each year among all the federal circuits by litigants, attorneys, and occasionally law clerks. If you go on the U.S. court's website, the vast majority are dismissed. When they occasionally result in discipline, it's typically a sanction with an order that is redacted, so it's difficult to search and figure out which judge was disciplined. But it is incredibly rare for an issue like this to become so public. I think that is good. I think sunlight and transparency are important here because I don't think that Judge Newman is the only older judge exhibiting these types of issues. 
And since I've begun speaking about this, I've heard from a lot of law clerks telling me similar experiences about the judges they are currently clerking for. So it's the Judicial Council that would investigate if a complaint is made, right? That's correct. And does that work much like it does in state attorney uh, discipline agencies in that anytime a complaint comes in, no matter what it is, they have to open it and investigate it. And counsel might get a letter like the day after their letter dated that the complaint is open that we didn't find anything of misconduct. So do they have to investigate every complaint that comes in or just the ones that seem like they need further inquiry? That's a good question. So under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, there can be a preliminary investigation by the chief judge, and the chief judge can determine that no further investigation, let alone discipline, is necessary. However, it also works in the reverse, in that the chief judge can initiate a complaint, a, an investigation, absent complaints, and they sometimes do. And it sounds like this was primarily initiated by Chief Judge Moore and her judiciary colleagues rather than formal complaints submitted by law clerks or other folks. So if it's the chief who decides and there's no one that would like overview his or her decision, because it seems like that could lead to a lot of bias and favors and not fairness. Good question. There are several layers of review under the JCND Act after the chief judge investigates. It can go up through several layers of appeal. So there are several people who will review the decision. It's interesting you ask about bias because Judge Newman pointed this out in her lawsuit. She said, my case should be transferred, the investigation into me, to another circuit because there is bias. My colleagues are biased against me. Now, the circuit reassignment is usually used to argue the reverse, that there will be too much leniency. The judges do not like to investigate, let alone discipline their colleagues. So it's funny that she is using it in the reverse. She's saying, my colleagues know me too well, therefore they want to get rid of me. I don't see it that way. Was the motion approved? No. Nope. It is staying in the federal circuit. And the federal circuit is unique in that there are no district court judges. It is the all the federal circuit judges are on the council. They can investigate their colleagues. So it is a unique circuit. But I really don't buy the allegations of bias by Chief Judge Moore. I think I applaud them for taking this investigation more seriously than typical allegations against judges are taken in the federal judiciary right now. Well, I was wondering about that, and I pulled the complaint, and I was like, oh, yeah, the people she's suing are overseeing the matter. Well, what the heck? You know, I mean, (laughs) what what are you going to do? Right, right. I mean, it is obviously a sensitive issue, but at the end of the day, this is not just about Judge Newman. This is about ensuring judicial integrity, confidence in the judiciary, and that requires, these are positions of public trust, judges are stewards of the people they serve, and it really calls into question the judicial fairness, fairness in judicial decision-making when we don't have confidence that the judges who interpret our laws, who make decisions that affect litigants' lives, livelihoods, and liberty may be unfit to serve. I was reading some of the orders and opinions in this case. Some of the cases that Judge Newman took a long time to issue opinions in were pro se litigants, folks without an attorney. They have no window into the internal machinations of these courts. They have no recourse if the judge overseeing their case is unfit to serve in some way. And it just really, I mean, it's a stain on judicial integrity for her to continue 
not participating in the investigation into your conduct, mishandling cases that affect these litigants. It's just really unfortunate. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about your experiences with clerking uh, for a federal judge and how you think that court system could improve oversight for judicial conduct. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I am speaking with Elisa Schatzman. She's the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. Tell me about your experiences clerking, because it was very formative for you, and I'm assuming as a new law school graduate, you didn't even know about some of these issues that have led to your opinions now. That's correct. So when I was a law student at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis, the messaging around clerking was uniformly positive as it continues to be on law school campuses. I was told that I would develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with the judge and the position would confer only professional benefits. So I clerked in D.C. Superior Court, which is an Article I court. So it's a hybrid state federal court during the 2019 to 2020 term. And during that time, I experienced harassment, gender discrimination, and ultimately retaliation by the judge for whom I clerked. He would tell me that I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, that I had personality issues, things that would only be said about a female clerk. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, he called me into his inner chambers and told me, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. This was my first legal job. It was devastating to be singled out for mistreatment. I tried to stick it out because I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for my next job. During the pandemic, we transitioned to remote work and the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before calling me up and firing me. 
telling me I lacked respect for him, but that he didn't want to get into it. He hung up on me. So I tried to use the channels that were available to me in the D.C. courts, reached out to HR. They said there was nothing they could do, that HR doesn't regulate judges, and that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And they pointed out that I was an at-will employee. So I reached out to my law school to wash you, seeking, you know, support, advice. Found out the judge had a history of harassing his clerks that law school officials knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, but had decided not to share with me. So it took me about a year to get back on my feet before I secured my dream job in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I had started working there. I was two weeks into training when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and my job offer was being revoked. So I filed a judicial complaint with the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. That's the regulatory body for D.C. local judges hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through the investigation, I found out he was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into other misconduct. At the time, he filed a negative reference, but the USAO was never alerted to those circumstances, and he filed a clarifying statement after he was removed from the bench, Um, but it was too late. And I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And during that time, I came to understand the real lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks, the real failures in attempts at judicial discipline. And whether you are a state or federal clerk, the mechanisms to protect you just are not there. Law clerks are exempt from Title VII, so they cannot sue. We are reliant in state court systems on judicial conduct commissions in the federal system the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, but judges are notoriously unwilling to discipline their colleagues. And in situations like mine, the headwinds are very much in favor of law clerks staying silent. It's important for me to be out there sharing my experience and underscoring that my experience, while not rare, is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And one of the only ways that we will change the culture and really discipline judges who mistreat their clerks is by empowering more law clerks to speak out, to file complaints. And it is unfortunate that there are no protections against retaliation. It is unfortunate that judicial conduct commissions do not discipline judges, sending the message that you shouldn't bother coming forward. I'm curious, as this process went on, were there times people would say to you, you know, it would really be worth it for you to stop talking about this. We could make it worth your while. Or or maybe it wasn't even that. It was rather, I, I'm sure people said this is going to hurt. You should stop talking. But did you ever, were you ever told that, you know, we'll take care of you, just zip it? So it was predominantly women who told me things like the right professional decision would have been not to report and that speaking publicly would tarnish my reputation. When I was going through the judicial complaint process, we were trying to find other law clerks and attorneys to share their experiences with this now former judge because I knew that a bunch of people had similar experiences. Very few people were willing to speak with the commission. They were all very focused on their own self-preservation 
And what I say now to law clerks considering speaking out, filing complaints, is that it is empowering to share your experience. It is a measure of accountability to be out there sharing my experience and to receive support now from throughout the legal community. But yes, I was definitely discouraged from filing a complaint, from speaking publicly before I submitted written testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. There were people who discouraged me from doing that. Um, I think now people are pretty used to me out there talking about these issues, but in the early days, it was much less hospitable to be speaking ill of a judge. And I'm not out there saying that all judges are bad. Most judges are wonderful people. They're good employers. But for judges who are doing the wrong thing, we need to shine a spotlight on that. It's it tarnishes the integrity of the judiciary when judges are mistreating their clerks and when they're not held accountable for that. With your work now, are you invited to speak very often at law schools about your experiences and advice? I spend a lot of time speaking at law schools about these issues. Right after we launched a legal accountability project last year, we went on this very robust fixing our clerkship system tour, visited more than 20 law schools last year, visiting a bunch more this year coming back to some places I visited, going to some new schools as well. I always share my experience and underscore that it's not rare, but it's rarely shared. But I also offer solutions, what LAP is working on as well as others, because I shouldn't, nobody should be out there just complaining. It's about providing concrete solutions to increase transparency, diversity, and accountability in judicial clerkships, the judiciary, and the legal profession. And law schools have generally been welcoming. I worry that a handful don't love my messaging on their campuses. But at the same time, I receive a lot of great feedback from law schools that I've really changed the messaging around clerkships on campus. And I try to focus on the positives and not the few schools who have a real chokehold on the clerkship messaging. Do you have a sense that for this generation of new law students and graduates who are in their early to mid-20s, their generation will speak out more when things make them uncomfortable. And it might even occur to them that things make them uncomfortable, where in previous generations, it it didn't even occur to us to say something. We just thought we had to put up with it. So I do hope so. And that is why I spend so much time engaging with law students. But I worry that the messaging on these law school campuses is very much in favor of staying silent never speaking ill of a judge, never filing a complaint, never speaking out about mistreatment. And that is the messaging that these law students are going up against. I've been very heartened by student advocacy and student leadership on these issues, but it's really about empowering law students and law clerks to demand accountability, even from their law school administrations. There are a couple generational issues here. There's a generational issue between today's generation of law students and law clerks that is more empowered, and that's great. But there's also a generational divide among judges. And it has nothing to do with political ideology. But when I think of younger judges, both liberal and conservative, they are much more evolved on issues related to judicial accountability and transparency. And it is the older generation of judges who I worry live in this kind of rarefied air where they never face pushback. They're never confronted with experiences like mine. And they believe that perhaps this was a status quo when they were law clerks and new attorneys coming up, that they experienced mistreatment. They kept their heads down, stayed silent and move on. 
and that that's how they should be treating their clerks and that's how the next generation should continue to endure it. I think that is terrible messaging and we need to make the profession better for the next generation of attorneys. Do you have a sense of whether generally when a judge's behavior is problematic, their colleagues are aware? That's a good question. Often, yes, but not always. There are rules of judicial conduct and rules of attorney professional responsibility that generally say judges are supposed to share this information when they see a colleague mistreating their clerks, litigants, other people, but they historically do not. And I worry that I speak with a lot of judges and I do typically ask, are you aware of any colleagues who mistreat their clerks, litigants, anybody else? Do you have tough conversations with their colleagues? And they kind of sometimes say, yes, I'll have the conversation, but um, there's only so much we can do. And even judges understand, many judges understand, that the mechanisms for judicial discipline are woefully inadequate. And that very little can be done, whether you are a life-tenured federal judge or you are a state court judge with a 10 to 15 year term, you rarely face um, opposition for reappointment or reelection. So most of these judges are living in this kind of untouchable position. From the outside looking in, it seems like if you're a federal judge, you're set. But in reality, I am curious if there are penalties for complaining about a judge's bad behavior or approaching a judge about their bad behavior. Maybe, you know, they could get a bad court assignment or not get any interesting cases or or bad cases. Those are good points. So right now, if a judge is found to have committed misconduct, they can be sanctioned. In Judge Newman's case right now, she will not be assigned any new cases for one year. So that is considered pretty robust judicial discipline in the system we have. Judges consider it a mark on their character to be disciplined, certainly, but they can't be removed except by congressional impeachment, which is exceedingly rare. So I think the mechanisms for judicial discipline are just inadequate. They do not sufficiently discourage bad behavior. I worry that we're sending a message by not really disciplining judges robustly that they are untouchable. Are there concerns from judges who are not engaged in bad behavior, but they're concerned about another judge and are thinking about approaching the judge or maybe going to the chief and saying, I think this is a problem? Were there sometimes be concerns that the judge who was pointing out the problem could get pushed back. I imagine they do have those concerns, but ultimately they have larger obligations. They've taken an oath of judicial office. They are public servants, stewards of the people they serve, and they have a larger obligation than just to themselves. Have you heard of situations where a judge is investigated, they found something. The judge took ownership of their behavior and did better going forward. So I speak sometimes with judges and circuit executives about this. And the question is really whether judges can fix their bad behavior. I'm aware of one or two circumstances, perhaps, but judges don't really receive training on managerial style on how to interact with law clerks and others. And I worry that by the time they are engaging in misconduct, um, not sure they can change. So I think it's about addressing the problems early, discouraging bad behavior in the first place. 
Are there instances in which a judge has improved? Perhaps. But I think there are more instances in which they don't. Have you seen or heard of situations where, uh, you know, that expression, the behavior was nipped in the bud, where a chief saw something from a judge that she didn't like, and she said, nope, not going to do this. And the judge got better or stopped doing the behavior that was offensive. So I feel bad for not having a better answer to your question, but I can't think really of any circumstances where I've heard that to be the case. People may not share that with you, too, (laughs) for the glass full point of view. Perhaps. You know, it's not that no judge can change their behavior, but if we want to focus on behavioral change, we need to put the processes in place to do that. The processes for raising a complaint, the processes for training judges on their conduct, I really think judges should have annual training on managerial style. Uh, I think that might help because one of the interesting things I hear a lot when judges are accused of some kind of bad behavior or mistreating their clerks, which is bad behavior, is that they didn't know. Or I'll talk to law clerks who are mistreated and I'll say, does the judge know you're unhappy? And they'll often say no. I hear that a lot from the judiciary. It's strange that a judge would not know they are engaging in poor behavior, which I think speaks to larger issues with the lack of oversight, lack of managerial training. But there are best practices. You shouldn't be yelling. You shouldn't be throwing things. These are high stress jobs, but treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And that's not necessarily the way you were treated as a law clerk. That's everything that I have to ask you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.